actually I'm driving. I think it's okay. Driving in Queens, huh? Is there a lot of traffic? <laughs> no, not not right now. We'll see how it gets when I move along. See, I wish there was more traffic because that would mean that there was industry in New York City. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's plenty of non-industry that people run around for, but um, it's not terribly productive. Yeah, uh, that's uh, a topic that's popped up a lot lately on the in the discourse, the internet discourse is productive versus unproductive labor or in industry versus non-industry and degrowth. Um, and it, it's becoming, I think, abundantly clear that we need to reverse the course that we're on of, of degrowth and deindustrialization. That's true. I think at the moment, given our lovely Speaker of the House's recent actions, we're... <laughs> We may not have too much growth or anything soon. This this landing in Taiwan was unbelievably outrageously provocative. Yeah. yeah. And it's kind of astounding that you could have major provocations of China and Russia both within when did Biden come in? Uh He's January twenty twenty one. Yeah. Yeah, not even. You're listening to the Space Commune podcast. This is Alex with Fox. And today on the podcast, we have Diane Sayre, who is a candidate for US Senate running against Charles Schumer, the incumbent in New York State. Diane, welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much. Yeah. Glad to be here. <laughs> yeah, we're excited to have you. I'm, I'm excited because um, you're going to be the fourth person um, to be on the Space Commune podcast from the uh, the infamous Ukraine blacklist. So ah. uh, <laughs> yeah, we're trying to catch them all. <laughs> There's like how many on that list? Like 70 72. Yeah, yeah so. it was 78 and somehow six of them got delisted, which I don't fully understand, but uh, yeah. it's 72 at this point. They didn't maintain the licensing agreement or something. <laughs> yeah, right. I don't know. Well, it's funny. It's like a large chunk of those people were from the Schiller slash LaRouche movement, right? The Schiller Institute slash yeah. LaRouche movement. Yeah. 30, 30 people, fully 30 people had addressed the Schiller Institute conference, which as they stressed in an open letter that's, that they're circulating, circulating myself included, um, they, everyone doesn't agree on everything. Everyone uh -huh. in that group, and that's the exciting thing I must say about these Schiller Institute conferences, what I really love about them is you bring together people who have sometimes very strong disagreements, as we saw when the United States was pulling out of Afghanistan, and uh, you know how to handle it, should we work with the Taliban, should we not, but they managed to have a civil dialogue and i think it demonstrated both how thorny the the challenge was and also the necessity to do what helga zeplarouche keeps emphasizing she uses this term from nicholas of kuza the coincidence of opposites um mm -hmm. but that you when you get at things from a higher standpoint you discover that perhaps things that you thought were differences may not indeed be such differences i think that's really the key and well, diane just for our listeners who might not be familiar uh what is the schiller institute well the schiller institute was founded in 1984 by helga Larouche, wife of the late american economist and former presidential candidate lyndon larouche and she actually founded it at that time because larouche was working um, as a back channel for Ronald Reagan to the Soviet Union in the early 80s. LaRouche had conceived of this principle, which Reagan called ultimately the Strategic Defense Initiative. But the idea of 
developing laser technology that could shoot down nuclear missiles so that you would have a basis to actually disarm and take the threat of thermonuclear war off the table. Uh, and what she was had in mind was how do we strengthen this transatlantic alliance? And she thought they're the only kind of relations you should have among nations is that you want to take the best of their culture and their history. You know, the British have this horrible policy. They call it bringing out the pig mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. they discovered that if you really want to have civil war in Africa, so you can, you know, some African nations, you can run in and steal all the raw materials or what the best yeah. thing to do is to bring out the most backward elements of everyone's culture. So they're just a bunch of you know, the more animalistic they are, and you can get them all warring with each other and committing atrocities, and then you control the game. So her idea is, well, why not take the best? In this case, she said the work of Friedrich Schiller, the great German poet of freedom, as he's known, and the American Declaration of Independence, which she only slightly tweaked and used it as the founding document for the Schiller Institute. The inalienable oh, wow. rights of man. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Yes. Yeah, and and it feels like uh, with everything that's going on, you know, the Schiller Institute actually, uh, although maybe maybe a lot of people who are listening haven't heard of it, it's actually very relevant in uh, what's going on right now with uh, international politics with Ukraine and Russia now with uh, China. Um, it, it seems like a lot of people that are involved with the Schiller Institute are uh, some of the most knowledgeable on these uh, on these current affairs right now. Yes, I, I think that's true. And there are people who have held, in many cases, have held prominent positions uh, in the military and in intelligence, uh, active diplomats uh, who have spoken at many of these conferences, um, you know, and, and people from think tanks or authors. So they're profound thinkers but they're not academic armchair farts. They want to <laughs> actually do something to yeah. change the course of human events. Like like run for office against Charles Schumer. <laughs> yes, <laughs> that's, that's yeah. one thing. Yeah, that that's um that's pretty awesome that you guys like you aim really high, which is great. You know, it's um seeing you know sort of witnessing how uh the larouche organization and the schiller institute organizes i'm i'm so impressed by you guys um you have an incredible uh ground game uh which you know i can see why why the <laughs> the establishment the state sees you guys as a threat because um i mean this is the kind of work that like the dnc and you know, to a lesser degree, I, I haven't seen much from the RNC, but it seems like the DNC really has, um, they're, they're very organized as far as like getting people on the ground to like, you know, do their operations. And, and you guys are like, you guys are really like you. So for people listening, um, they might not realize this, but in New York state, um they just changed the law and right uh and and diane had to get uh 45,000 signatures just to get on the ballot to challenge chuck schumer in this election um is that that's different uh if you're more than other states if it's different than other states but it's also like yeah if you're running on the democrat ticket or the republican ticket you don't do you have to get as many or no, no. If you're running in the Democratic primary or Republican primary, first of all, those parties are what we call quote unquote viable, which means they don't have to prove themselves again. Right. So if they hold a convention and simply nominate a slate or they have a procedure where I think you have to get at least 25 percent of the vote at the convention to get a spot on the ballot, I think the parties may have different laws, but if the party nominates you, you are automatically on the ballot. You don't have to petition. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to do anything. And what makes it, no, you're just nominated and you're on the ballot. That's it. Huh. Now, if you want to challenge that structure, like in the gubernatorial race, 
uh, former Congressman Swozy from Long Island, or I guess he's still in the Congress, but um, and up for re-election, or maybe he's not running because he decided to run for governor. So he did not get the nomination. Uh, Hochul got the nomination. So he decided to petition to get on the ballot for the primary. And in that case, you would have to get 15,000 signatures. So if you're okay. in a statewide race, if I had wanted to run in the Democratic primary against Schumer, right. then I would have needed 15,000 signatures. Well, and that's why we have so many uh, primary, We like the primaries, the Democrat primaries are like a bigger, I'd say a bigger deal in New York State than the actual elections themselves. And it's almost well, like they're very to, important yeah. because you that's where you actually get a choice, you know, where you can determine who the nominee would be or you would hope that you could. Uh, and I think it's really outrageous, like Zeldin, the Republican nominee for governor. He actually tried to throw all the other Republican candidates off the ballot. They turned in their 15,000 signatures. He challenged them to try huh. and get them thrown off and they happily were not. And and I find that the logic of that odd, because if you think you're already the strong leader, you've got the nomination, wouldn't you want a primary process where maybe people who didn't really support you got brought in because they really wanted to vote for Carpinelli or Giuliani, you know, they wanted to vote for someone else. So they got swept in the primary and then that person lost, but now they are in motion, they're activated. It seems to me you'd have a much more process yeah. by encouraging the debate, encouraging the competition, as opposed to saying, no, it's a dictatorship. We don't want differing opinions. There's no, if you don't agree well, with us, right. there's no place for your voice. Well, right? I think you're just, what you're describing, what, what you're thinking, the way you're thinking about it is the way it should operate, which is, you know, whoever the people want, it should be the representative right. should be elected based on the people's will. And so however we get there, that's that's what should dictate who becomes the representative. And that's how it should be. But uh, I think most politicians, whether they're Democrat, Republican, whatever establishment candidate um, or, you know, some of these faux faux uh, grassroots candidates, um, right. it's really not about that. It's about winning the game for them. They don't care how dirty they have to play it. Um, it's, it's about the, the prize at the end. Um, it's not about representing the, what the people, the will of the people, um, and, and, right. and to take it back to, you know, getting those 45,000 signatures is, is massively impressive. You know, that's a tremendous amount of signature. You got more too, right? You got like 60,000. Right. We turned in. Yeah, we turned in about 66,000 signatures, and I did not hire a single professional petitioning vendor. You know, in New York, they also have this obscene thing with matching funds. If you're running for state office, Senate, U.S. Senate is federal office, so I'm not eligible for matching funds. But if you're running for state office, the uh, the matching funds are eight to one. So if someone donates $250, you get $2,000. Wow. Pretty wild. So you have all this money sloshing around. And a lot of these sort of hustlers or opportunists, I would say, they just say, oh, you're running for office. Oh, I need a job. You know, they just think there's all this money there. Yeah. yeah. And um they just want to so see you get approached. Well, I can do petitioning. I can do this. I can do that. And I just said, no, because we have an impossible job. And this is a job that no paid professional petitioner will be able to do because it's going to require going beyond the call of duty, so to speak. You're not going to clock in and clock out. I couldn't pay people a certain number of hours. I mean, we had the first day of the petitioning was April 19th, and I went to join our Buffalo volunteers. And as I'm driving up there, the flashing signs on the road say, snow, uh, snow tomorrow. Oh, wow. uh, and I'm thinking, oh, great. So I'm going to start the petitioning in the middle of a uh, snowstorm. <laughs> That's good luck. Uh, you know, yeah, right, exactly. So <laughs> it, it was just uh, terrible. Well, I'm proud. terrible. If there if there's snow that late in April, that means that 
you have climate change, and that means we need <laughs> solar panels and wind turbines. Right, and then <laughs> all the children are going right to be. Now. Yeah, right. Panicking. What they've done with that is so cruel. But I want to get back to this whole question of quote unquote democracy or people having the voice. I mean, look, we just have we had one this provocation of Russia with our incessant arming of Ukraine. Now, if you took a vote in the American population, how many people do you think would vote to send a total now, I think it's $70 billion worth of military aid and governmental support and various things to Ukraine. Yeah, not a majority. They, I don't think a majority would. No, absolutely not. People would not. So they don't want you to have, and we see that, look, Boris Johnson is out now. There's whoever is in after him, I'm afraid, will be just as bad or worse. And then you have Mario Draghi in Italy, the same thing. I, I did an interview um, with some press in Italy and they expressed to me, one, how closely they had followed what happened with the 2020 election, which they felt was uh, stolen. And they said, we here feel the same thing. In fact, they had demonstrations and blocked off ports trying to prevent weapons from Italy getting into Ukraine hmm. or airports. They, were, they were, had huge protests. Uh, and they said the government, they just keep voting to send them all these weapons and no one wants it, but we don't have any control over them. Yeah. And Pelosi just pulled, which is so exceedingly dangerous. And I think the situation now uh, in the water around Taiwan is just unbelievably dangerous. China has now moved all of these uh, vessels into the area. They're going to do military exercise yeah it's really terrifying what's shooting. happening yeah it's really yeah. terrifying what's happening there you know i'm personally i'm glad that uh the situation didn't escalate with pelosi i know some people were sad that china wasn't more aggressive but um i'm not i i don't really want to send us into world war three although you know you could argue we're already sort someone in it um and we're just fighting with with different tactics like biological warfare and information warfare rather than nuclear warfare. Um, but yeah, to go back to what you were saying before, I don't think that a majority of, of uh, Americans, the, the majority of Americans are worried about gas prices and worried about inflation right. and worried about the cost of food. Um, they don't even have time to think about geopolitics. Um, it, yeah, uh, it's funny. I saw somebody commenting on a Facebook post. A local uh, newspaper was uh, writing about how the the gas prices are going down again. But you know, of course, people can see that that's bullshit, and they are like, they're they're <laughs> not going down. They're still about double or triple what they were before. Yeah, exactly. Even if they are. And people aren't yeah. stupid. People aren't stupid. They're saying they're they're calling that out, and they and one commenter said. Um, so it was it was Putin's price hike, right? So now uh, can we thank Putin for making the the gas prices go down? <laughs> you know, people aren't stupid. They they right. they they don't want to be dragged into to war. You know, no, they don't. Uh, but no one's asking them, and that's the point. And yeah. that's really why I thought this campaign was so important. And and I consider it an enormous victory that we succeeded. I am the only candidate in the state who succeeded at getting on the ballot with over 45,000 signatures. That's awesome. That's awesome. I'm, I am, by the way, proud to have helped with that. Um, I did help petition to get some signatures for you one day. Uh, it was, yes. it was tough because we got turned away from like multiple, uh, like, uh, grocery stores, grocery. Walmart. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It is, it is hard to find a yeah. place that would actually let us uh, petition, but we did. And yeah. Yeah, and apparently Stop and Shop allows petitioning because it's a they're a unionized grocery store. Oh, is that it? Yeah. Huh. Uh, so I think yeah, it's, it's like the the union elections that they it's like a loophole to oh, get there you go to allow Larouche people. To but it is <laughs> outrageous. <laughs> yeah, right. That the state creates these outrageous requirements. Yeah. And then they don't have a provision that you're allowed to do it. Although I'll tell you, there's a I forget what it's called, but we discovered that a law had been passed which 
will penalize stores if they throw you off for petitioning. That is, if they file a lawsuit against you or arrest you, you have a very good shot on the appeal of winning against mm. them. But the, why should we have to go through lawsuits? That's the other thing that really yeah. drives me crazy. You know, I actually hired three lawyers to make sure I got on the ballot. I, I hired one just as an election lawyer because the note, I know the forms and the laws and everything is so picky, crazy, impossible. So I had one attorney just to help guide us through the process. Then when they redid the congressional districts in the middle of the petitioning period. So here you're required to not only get 45,000 valid signatures, but to have at least 500 signatures in each of 13 congressional districts. Wow. Excepting you didn't know where the districts were because there weren't any. <laughs> right. That's because right. They, they had redistricted. Correct. So I filed, I joined the Libertarian Party in a suit saying this was creating hardship yeah. because you have this requirement. And they say, well, you'll ha you'll know the district nine days before the filing deadline. That's crazy. And I said, do you realize how much time I had calculated how many hours it took for our volunteers to validate signatures and see which congressional districts they were in. And I determined that it would take something like 7,000 man hours hmm. to go through the number of signatures that we had and determine, you know, if you were going to input them in their voter database. And then they said, well, our database will not be updated until three days before the filing. <laughs> wow. So, uh, and they, they they just ignored it. They said it's not onerous. Anyone who's reasonably diligent can do this. I mean, it was so outrageous, so outrageous. At any rate, so that was another lawsuit where I had to hire a lawyer just for that. And then I actually hired another attorney on another matter pertaining to the illegality of applying this to, you know, petition increase to a federal candidate, et cetera. So imagine that. It, it, democracy, right? We're the great free speech, free nation. And you have to spend tens of thousands of dollars that you'd rather spend advertising, printing literature, you know, yeah. paying stipends or whatever, and you're spending it on lawyers. Yeah. Well, it's democracy for those who can afford it. Right. <laughs> we live in an open society yeah. <laughs> and we just need to ensure that other societies can also be as open as, as open us. As us. Uh, so, <laughs> right. So Dan, so you started running uh, early 2021, right? Yeah, I actually announced in 2020. Okay. So yeah, yeah, I just I just was thinking back today a little bit about early 2021. You know, in April 2021, I think that was the first time I'd heard of you because you were at the Indian Point closing uh, and the, yeah. uh, the the ceremony that was put on by nuclear advocates uh, to memorialize all the great work that uh, people did at the plant over decades right and uh, i was yeah. just thinking back to like how different things were just just a year ago like in early 2021 electricity was cost half of what it costs now you know gas mm -hmm. was gas was probably in like the low three dollar range uh we didn't we didn't just send uh tens of billions of dollars to ukraine you know, we uh, tensions right. with China were a lot less than they are now. It just feels like all these issues that uh, are so central uh, to your campaign have kind of um, exploded uh, since your campaign started. Yes. And there, there seems so much more relevant now to the average person. Um, can you speak to that a little bit just about how, you know, maybe like last year, cooperation with China and Russia didn't really seem front of mind with a lot of people, but now it just seems like just a no-brainer, at least to us. Well, I think what's driving this is what Lyndon LaRouche warned about for many years, which is the the transatlantic financial system, this derivatives speculation-based financial system is done. It's over. Uh, you can only pump up a bubble so long. Anyone who's ever played with soap bubbles knows that uh, <laughs> at a certain point, the bubble will end, yeah. either because you inflated it too much or it bumps into a tree or something or other. Um, but that's the situation. So we are having the end of a rotten treasonous system 
and they don't want to give up their power and they are prepared to blow up the entire planet or at least threaten to uh, if they cannot get their way. Uh, so that's, you know, that's really the backdrop. And of course, what LaRouche had proposed and what I am advocating, and this is what makes me really such an opponent to Schumer because he has never met a Wall Street bailout he didn't support. And he mm -hmm. even argued, he made the point of taking the floor to argue in favor of repealing the Glass-Steagall Act mm -hmm. and passing Gramm-Leach-Bliley. He was very much involved in, in doing that on behalf of his Wall Street controllers. Um, so this has to be put through bankruptcy. You just can't save it. And if a few billionaires end up becoming only millionaires, I haven't been a millionaire myself, but I imagine I could survive yeah. <laughs> on a million dollars. You're not going to starve to death, right? So yeah. if they had to give up a mansion or two and they only had five houses instead of 20 or whatever they have, why are we safe? Why are we literally killing people yeah. to bail out this system? And then you have on top of that, this ideology, which is so hateful of humanity, of, of Thomas Malthus, right? Yeah. That the world's overpopulated. And I don't know if you saw Bill Maher just did this oh, show boy. where he was making fun of Elon Musk, uh, saying that Elon Musk is crazy for saying the biggest threat is the co collapse of population. Mm. And then going through all these things, it was designed to be like a horror show for children, I think, how we're running out of water, we're running out of food, and what's the number one issue? There's too many of us, there's too many people. Wow. It's really evil, because if we're at 8 billion people, as we are now, and you think the world can only sustain 1 billion, well, that's 7 billion people you got to kill. God, Bill Maher is such a shitlib. I hate that guy. <laughs> well, is he, yeah. He's the one who was saying that, right? He's the one who was like... Yes, yes, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, I feel like people aren't as vulgar as Malthusians as they used to be. Like, uh, Instead of saying we need to kill all these people, they'll just say we don't need to keep them alive anymore. Yeah. So like, they're becoming kinder. <laughs> um yeah they're, they're getting they're getting better at their messaging that's what yeah. it is they're they're saying oh it's we don't want to reduce the population we want to consume less that's what they yeah. always talk about is consumers right right which population. will lead to a hyperbolic increase in the death rate yes exactly yeah yeah and uh you know in, in new york state especially um you know like i said about indian point before i mean that plant closing that that is a very concrete thing that happened that's related yeah. to all this is that we're we're not even replacing nuclear power we're just shutting it down we're not replacing right. it with anything and we're saying oh maybe you know maybe we can cite it's we can psychotic like plow over some farmland upstate and put some solar panels that only work you know 15 percent of the time and maybe put right. some wind turbines out in the ocean and maybe oh yeah those, oh and the farms i just drove uh on this i had a trip to buffalo last week and we saw so many of these windmills and I actually felt like I was in a kind of a sci-fi horror movie, like these huh. giant creatures waving. And we saw one where the propeller had just broken off and was just hanging Whoa. down and they're huge. They yeah, are unbelievably enormous. Yeah. And most of them were not even turning, of course, <laughs> because you don't have... It, it really boggles the mind. And I don't know how anyone calling themselves an environmentalist could be, could not be concerned about that massive amount of fiberglass, yeah. toxic oil and grease and non-biodegradable materials that go into these things and the number of birds that they're killing, particularly yeah, raptors, you know, bald eagles and hawks and things like that. Uh, it really is just unbelievable but yeah. it really kind of took my breath away because they were so huge and and uh somehow looked so sinister it was like an invasion of they some are sinister yeah and, and what's sad about it too is that people upstate think that these turbines represent industrialization yes. which is which is the furthest it's thing fake, from it. yeah it's yeah. fake growth i mean well that's back to their messaging right is you know their campaigns they say build or burn you know and they 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 consider this building they consider right. uh 
uh, wind turbines and solar panels building. They consider bike lanes uh, infrastructure and and the disconnect with, and they they consider organic <laughs> right. farming farming and, and the disconnect right. with all these things and i i this is where i really like the larouche concept of energy density energy flux density is that these things right. aren't actually you know an improvement they're not helping the energy flux density they're not helping us you know uh feed more people or provide more energy or you know whatever creating a more dense uh energetic society they're slowing things down and that's that's their whole thing they're is retarding they want, progress they're retarding progress yes and that's right. like that, that's like the 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 little game that they play and that's their little pr stunts they're saying no we want to build these things but these things are not a solution and and it anyone with like a smidge of te technical knowledge knows that these things literally can't replace yeah. they can't replace what we had before which was oil gas coal and and nuclear they can't replace those things so if you don't want to kill people off with energy austerity you literally need to have a backup so it's like the oil companies the big oil cartels it's a win-win for them. Either people die off or they have to pay a ton of money for their right. for their products. Well, specifically natural gas. Like yeah. It's and that's why our electricity prices are tied to the volatile natural gas market more than ever. When at least in the past with you know, with oil or with coal, you have a diversity of sources. And if natural gas gets too expensive, then you can do more of another one. And there's all kinds of trade-offs, but uh but you know that's why our energy prices have doubled since indian point closed yeah and we're also going to have shortages we have to and i don't know what that's going to look like how they're going to if they're going to have willful deliberate brownouts and blackouts like you know in texas what they're doing in the middle of a heat wave is they're telling people don't use any electricity during such hours try to change your meal time don't eat during this it's crazy it's really crazy yeah. well you know and I, I think the the other side of it too is that uh for climate activists who are the ones who are leading the charge to shut down our energy sources and shut down our industry uh they're saying it's because of climate change and that the importance of stopping climate change and uh whenever you look at a, a co2 chart about you know projections about different continents emitting co2 and all that uh you know it's pretty it's pretty flat for the usa and for the west in general and it's uh, africa china asia uh, south america you know as they industrialize and as they build up their their standard of living and life expectancy uh those areas are going to be emitting more carbon and, and i hope they do like I, because that means that they're going to be successful um and it's just right and we that, actually yeah. need it I think we're having a carbon shortage, actually, or at least a CO two shortage. <laughs> I that's I like to hear that. I you know it's like we we need more CO two. I like I like the it's uh, plant food. It's plant yeah. food, and and we are suffering from a shortage of it. Actually, we could use it a lot more. I mean, people put it in their greenhouses. Huh. So the idea, you know, they're building absurdly expensive garbage to store co2 underground huh. <laughs> and people are paying for this it's so it it really boggles the mind now we need more co2 and i'll give you an example because it appears there may be a correlation between temperature and co2 but not in the order that they say but that after a warm period you get an increase in co2 in the atmosphere Hmm. And uh, the reason for that would be is that the oceans are the biggest source of CO2, massive amount of water and the um, CO2 in the ocean. Hmm. And it's just like a carbonated carbon, right? Carbonated beverage huh. that if you heat it up, all the fizz goes out, right? Oh. So if the oceans warm up, the carbon dioxide comes out of the ocean. Hmm. And that's a massive source of carbon dioxide. Well, and, they, and don't they say that 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 that's what's heating the planet, and so it's this 
the cycle of heating the oceans and the oceans emit carbon and then the carbon heats the oceans? Well, I, mean, what, I don't know if they're admitting that the carbons are the oceans are what em, emits the carbon. They're saying that the carbon dioxide is getting trapped and that it's a warming gas of which there isn't any proof that I'm aware of. Uh, and they are, but they ignore that it appears there may be an inverse, a, a relationship between temperature and carbon. They're falsifying the relationship between increases in carbon dioxide in the air, that, that the warming of the oceans releases more carbon dioxide. So the increase in carbon dioxide actually follows an increase in temperature and therefore is not the cause of it, but rather the result of Interesting. it. Yeah. And, you know, the thing is, like, I'm not a scientist and, um, you know, I don't I don't really want to like people listening. Like, I don't want people to think that I'm trying to tell them one kind of science is right or whatever. But that makes me think of like, you know, something I thought about the other day is that like they really it seems like there's a concerted effort for people to believe only a very specific um, scientific doctrine that's coming out of the mainstream media. There's no, there's no discussion that's allowed on these topics. Like, you know, right. if, if some people might look at our conversation now or listen to our conversation now and say, oh, you're being, you know, climate denialists and you're, you're not believing the science or something. And, and it's like kind of scary how, our society is saying is not even allowing for discussion of these ideas to even like ask these questions and say, well, what's causing this? Are you sure that's this? And, and, and it, there's so much like hyped up about there being, um, you know, conspiracy theories and bunk science and they have the flat earther people to like make it seem like if you question the mainstream, you're just, you're, a, you're the, you're analogous to a flat earther. And, and that's what really scares me right. is that like, we're not even allowed to question these narratives. We're just supposed to trust the science <laughs> and just right. accept the politics um, around that. And that's where, where I come back in and say the, my, my politics are about humanity and we should all be working together to look at these problems, not to say, oh, you just have to listen to X, Y, Z and do this and shut up about it. No, we have to come together to, to solve these problems based on yeah. what's best for humanity. And if I could say really quick, just right. the narcissism of uh, climate activists, especially in New York State or, you know, it was the birthplace of the modern environmental movement. Uh, because maybe they, they listen to this conversation and say, oh, you know, thinking like this is literally going to kill me because <laughs> the climate is going to change and, you know, things are going to get worse. Like this, this thinking, this, especially the Green New Deal, which is built on imperialism and suppressing development in Africa and South America, you're, we're literally killing people down there yeah, uh, so that we can feel good about our little you know, 2% reduction in CO2. Well, and the thing is like, even if all the science that they, you know, say is correct and like sea levels are going to rise and this and that and the other, well, then we need to build infrastructure to protect human beings. Yeah. We need to develop right. Africa, you know, we need to like build infrastructure so that people can survive climate change. So that, yeah. that that's the, I mean, that's, that's the literal oldest, that's the oldest uh, fight in the book, right? Is that we're yeah. trying to beat mother nature <laughs> and everyone just worships mother nature. They're like, oh no, she's, she's angry. She's all knowing and angry and she, we're going to destroy her, but she's going to destroy us. And it's like, no, why don't we like, why don't we harness, you know, um, human potential and, and protect our you know, species as a whole. Well, the COVID lockdowns are sending us to our rooms. <laughs> yeah. Naughty. So well, you know, one question I wanted to, maybe we can circle back to this is um, uh, Glass-Steagall. So you guys bring this up a lot. I, when I say you guys, I mean you and the LaRouche movement, I know are that's this is like a big core tenant of your movement. Um, is there any way you can sort of give um, like the, like a blurb of what, what that, is exactly if for people who are listening who don't know the history of Glass-Steagall and, and what does it mean? What what does Glass-Steagall mean to like regular people? Well, first of all, was 
was enacted in 1933 under Franklin Roosevelt, and he came in on the heels of the crash of the stock market in 1929. And when he and came into office in 19, well, he won the election in 32. He was inaugurated, I guess, March of 33. Uh, banks were closing all over the place. So one of the first things he had to do literally almost immediately was declare a bank holiday and shut the banks down for four days over a weekend. And he had local people in every state. It wasn't you didn't you couldn't do it centrally in that way, but you had to have people in every city, every town to go through these books and write off what was illegitimate debt and reorganize what was legitimate debt. And LaRouche talked about when he was in management consulting in the 1950s, he was still dealing with loans for companies which had been restructured from that time. That people would say, well, instead of 10 years, you're going to have 20 years, but you're going to repay this because it has value, right? Other stuff was garbage and they weren't going to, they're going to let it go. So you had that process first. And then after that, the idea was that you want to put up a firewall that you've cleaned up your banks, your commercial savings and loan institutions, and you want to be able to guarantee people's deposits. And that means you don't want those deposits being used as collateral for gambling on the market. Mm. So you put up a wall where you said the investment side of banking on playing the market and so on cannot be under the same roof or have the same board as the savings and loan side. So commercial banks, they would do loans, you know, mortgages or small business loans or things that weren't particularly speculative, right? They mm. weren't selling insurance. They didn't do things like that. So your money it was, was like a, very it was like secure. A, it was a service to the to the people who want to improve their lives. Yeah. Those types of, those and, types and, of things, yeah. Right, right. And during that period when Glass-Steagall was in effect, uh, very, very few banks failed. It was in effect from 1933 to 1999. It was repealed under Clinton, under extreme pressure from Alan Greenspan and I think Robert Rubin and Chuck Schumer. Um, and they got rid of it and they said, oh, no, we're going to uh, we want to be able. What happened actually was in 98 City Group merged with Travelers Insurance, which would be illegal under Glass-Steagall. So if you break the law, what better way to not be prosecuted than just get rid of it? Just change the law. <laughs> Right. Right. Exactly. So I got rid of that law. And that also made it possible for another thing that Americans overwhelmingly opposed in 2008 when everything crashed and they did all these bailouts. Since they had gotten rid of that firewall, they could make, I forget which bank it was, Bank of America or something gobbled up countrywide. So you could stick these speculative gambling houses into the banks and then people, the speculative start using people's savings, which is why this this whole bailout process, yeah. because there was no Glass-Steagall, so you didn't have to just let them crash or let them fail, um, created a situation where today we have more money in fewer hands. The banks yeah. are holding record deposits, and we really are headed for the mother of all blowouts, however whatever form it's going to take. So it's basically like a way to reform banking so that we can actually go back to a form of banking that serves um, people in a way without the, the speculation and the gambling and the, um, that side of the market where, you know, these guys make all their money, but then, you know, it, it's totally volatile and um, just screws everything up. Um, so it's sort of this way to kind of separate those two and sort of create a, an avenue for banking to become an actual service for people to make their lives better again, right? Yeah. I mean, when I was 11 years old, dating myself, I won't say what year that was, but it was a while ago. I, um, I had all this, I had $77, I think, saved up from Christmas and my birthday and a little plastic yogurt container. And so I proudly took it to the bank. 
and opened a savings account. And the teller was so impressed. I got all these nifty things, the flashlight and this and that. Um, but my little savings account earned 5% interest. Damn. Just the so, savings account. So you're a millionaire now. <laughs> yeah, I would be, but that ended. Right now you basically uh, have to pay to have the privilege of letting them play with your money. Yeah. Right. They and and you have if you're ba- if you're if the bank is playing the market, you might consider it really good if you have a one percent or you know what I'm saying. I mean, it's yeah. outrageous. What are the percentage you're paying on your credit card debt? Yeah. So twenty like percent. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And if, God forbid, if you ever make a late payment, it could be twenty nine percent. Yeah. It's, so yeah, it's, it's a form of tax farming, right? The little guys get completely screwed, have to pay massive fees and interest and everything else. And if you're rich, you get everything given to you on a silver platter. Yeah. Well, I, I like your policy platform a lot. You're, and you're, uh, your whole campaign is very inspiring. The way people have come out and support um that's it's really awesome. What how do you feel about um the rest of your, you know, you have until November now. You have to you have to keep campaigning, you got on the ballot. What um how do you feel about the rest of your race looking forward? Well, the challenge is to break the blackout and for that I am very happy to have been placed on the Ukrainian hit list, blacklist. <laughs> Uh, I think it's really a badge badge of of honor. honor. Oh, yeah. Yes. uh, That my work and the Schiller Institute's work were considered threatening enough to some very evil institutions that they wanted to single us out for targeting. I concur with Scott Ritter that our representatives should be made to answer. He, He published an open letter to Senators Schumer and Gillibrand and his representative Tonko saying, I reside in the state of New York. My name has appeared on this blacklist. This can harm my career, but worse, the Ukrainian blacklists have a way of turning into hit lists and my safety may be in danger. And you just approved a supplemental budget to run the Ukrainian civil service and government, this $8.7 billion that was passed May 21st, 2022. And he says, I would like to know, are my senators, have you given money, allocated my taxpayer dollars to a foreign government, which is going to abrogate my First Amendment rights? Mm -hmm. And he brought up in another interview, my campaign, actually, uh, because he said, here you have a candidate who's running against Schumer, who's now on this blacklist. Is he trying to silence her? Yeah, yeah. But that was, it, it, there's been a lot of um, publicity of that. So there was this huge article in the New York Times about the fact that my campaign and the Libertarian Party worked together to throw the Independence Party, which is just a cover for the Republican Party, off of getting the Independence Party line. They filed 52,000 signatures. Lee Zeldin is the top of that slate. A guy named Joe Pinion is their Senate candidate. And um, some of my volunteers observed when they were looking through their petitions that they had filed a thousand pages of photocopies. Uh, and the board of yeah, and the board of elections found that they had filed at least thirteen thousand fraudulent signatures, which knocked them down to thirty nine thousand. And that's before you even took off probably what would be twenty percent if you did a validity check or anything like that. So they weren't even close. And I considered that to be a great victory because that that's the Republican Party with the Republican Party money, the Republican Party. Everyone knows. Lee Zeldin's name. He's a sitting incumbent congressman. They're supposedly viable. That's why they don't have to do this. And they could not make it without committing massive fraud. Hmm. Uh, And I was very happy to be involved in in throwing them off the ballot uh, because I don't think people treat the voters very badly. Yeah. They, they think they can just take you for granted and just do whatever the hell, 
they want. And it's really um, ugly. And it's why more people are not involved and why people don't vote because they say, why does it matter? They're just going to do whatever they want. Yeah. Yeah. There's a, and there's a long history of these weird ballot line things in New York state. Like uh, I know the, the petitioning requirement that you faced, that was because Cuomo was trying to knock the working families party off the ballot uh, for a long time. And then before that he did something you know, because on the ba- on the ballot, the Working Families Party appears as NYWFP. So he started. Uh, he was being primaried by uh, a woman, I think, and he started. Cynthia Nixon. Party. Yeah, Cynthia. Yeah, yeah, he's well. No, this was even before that. I think this was against. Oh, before that, okay. Celia Tyzik or something uh, like that, hmm. uh, or some someone else maybe. I'm not sure, uh, but uh, he started the New York Women's Equality Party. So the NYWEP. <gasps> Yeah, and it was a total oh, bullshit wow. party um, that he propped <laughs> right. up, and then they they didn't right. make their the uh, ballot requirement. And they fell off the ballot, sadly. Well, and even even working fam, I mean that's terrible and shitty. But even the working families party is they're a fraud because yeah. they endorsed they they and the conservative party endorsed Trump and Biden to keep their party lines. So presumably you want to be a party that other people, that people join because they want an alternative, but you say, well, we're not going to really run a presidential candidate. So really we're just the democratic and Republican party again with a new name, but we keep our ballot line and then we don't have to petition to get anyone on the ballot. Yeah. I was going to say, even the working families party is uh, a Soros operation now. So it like doesn't even matter. It's like all these all these fake grassroots parties and right yeah exactly they are fake they are fake but yeah. you know it, it was actually i was looking through this this uh, newspaper that you handed out at the event up here in kingston um which was an awesome event by the way uh yeah. scott ritter spoke at that event which was really cool yeah. and there was a former cia guy who spoke who was saying like actual good things about russia i was like wow that's impressive <laughs> you're ho- you're holding like a symposium uh with with uh, oh yes on fridays with is that is that on every friday you do these yes oh cool mm-hmm. yeah and you had um you had jeff young on and yeah um, you had a you had a republican named randy perham from alaska yes. Which is yep. cool. I mean, it's. I think it's so cool that you're like assembling all these people who are kind of like they're just outs outsider candidates who are really in it because they want change and they want to represent the people. And it doesn't like you can right. play. That's the thing is I I try to communicate to people all the time is that you know you could play in the Democrat Party or the Republican Party or do a third party. Like your allegiance shouldn't be to any of these parties. It should be to the people, and we should all be coming together like what you're doing, bringing all these candidates together who are for, you know, uh, bringing back our, our constitutional uh, country and, 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 and running, running our country the way it was intended to be, um, which is by and for the people. Um, so I thought that was really cool uh, that you're doing that. Well, I think it, it has to be done. People deserve better. And really how do you learn anything except by i mean either you have a dialogue with yourself and you say well i don't know if that's quite right maybe i should try this but if you have a dialogue right dialogue with another person yeah and they say you know whatever they say no that's complete crap i'm right then you can either reject that or maybe you come to a higher understanding and maybe they change part of what they were saying and you so I think the dialogue is just invaluable. I mean, we are each one person. So there are times it might just be possible that we should just consider that perhaps we haven't considered a problem from many different perspectives. And therefore, the value of talking to another person about it Uh, is great. And you're not allowed to do that. In fact, this is one of the things about why they made this outrageous requirement for the 45,000 signatures. The Board of Elections literally said that we don't want candidates 
whose opinions do not reflect the view of the majority. Hmm. Now, if that's not just explicit totalitarianism, I don't know what is. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and I, I want to say this too, like the electorate in New York State, we have the most population loss year over year here in New York State. Like I think last year, we lost something like 300,000 people in New York State who moved wow. to other states. 300,000 people? Yeah. Uh, what is our population? I think it's a little under 10 19 million. million. Oh, 19. Well, I guess we get a, we get a we get a big bump from New York City and what's well, like eight million, right. yeah, yeah, something like that. But uh, yeah, you know, like I have this chart pulled up. It's like the percentage change in manufacturing across different New York State metropolitan areas. Uh, so upstate New York, you know, it didn't always be it wasn't always like this. Um, but upstate New York has lost something around fifty percent of its manufacturing capacity. Uh, since the 1970s. I mean, we're talking about like a, you know, New York City has has transitioned from a manufacturing economy to this kind of Wall Street, real estate, um, tourists economy that, you know, still generates a lot of money uh, and revenue, but upstate has just been decimated uh, by this deindustrialization. And also, if you want to talk about overpopulation, like we've, we have, we've been losing people and yeah. yet everything's more expensive than ever. They're deep, they're depopulating. Yeah. I think, I think, right. I mean, they're, I think they're doing a slow drip with this depopulation stuff. They're not going to, they're like, oh, you know what? The Nazis, they, they made too big of a spectacle out of it. We can't do it that way this time. We have to be sneakier about it. You yeah. know, that's what I always think about is like, they're, they learn from like the, the, um, the fascist movement in the, in during world war ii and they're like we can't be that grandiose about yeah. it this time we have to be a little bit more covert <laughs> about our depopulation stuff yeah. try to make it seem like it's a natural disaster and there's nothing we can do about it yeah but yeah i mean diane so like when you drive around new york state and you, you visit these different upstate communities i mean what <laughs> like right. what are you hearing from people and like you know what what are, what are people asking you about that uh, is on their mind well, I went very far upstate last summer, and I'm headed there again soon, St. Lawrence County, and that's the farm area, and what the farmers were worried about is famine. Hmm. They said, wow. we can see that there is going to be starvation because we are not being allowed to produce Holy crap. what's needed, uh, and they're very worried about it, uh, and they're right, I think. So that was one thing. Also, a farmer told me that because of the massive increase in fertilizer, thanks to the sanctions, his friends are no longer producing corn, but have gone into soy because mm. they cannot afford Ooh. to fertilize their crops. Yeah. Wow. So it's uh, that's very real. The other thing is they really all hate the city. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> uh, because you know one of the one of the things that I really think should have been built back in 2009 when it was first proposed was something called the Outer Harbor Gateway. It's a storm surge barrier, five miles long, that goes from Sandy Hook in New Jersey to the Rockaways on Long Island, mm. and it's. There was one designed by the same company, which they finally completed around St. Petersburg, which is actually, I think it's 16 miles long. And it's, and they had a huge hurricane. They had completed it right before 2012 when we had Sandy here. And the thing just functioned magnificently. Hmm. And had this storm surge barrier been built, 95% of the damage from Sandy just would not have happened because you're talking about protecting the entire um, ports of Elizabeth and Newark, uh, Staten Island, Lower Manhattan. Part of it is another barrier by Long Island Sound. Plus, I thought, wouldn't it be great if you could have a train that goes from Pennsylvania through New Jersey over to Long Island? It doesn't even go through the city. Mm -hmm. If you're going to develop some of these high-tech corridors, we're going to revive the space program 
wouldn't you want to be able to get directly from Long Island to Detroit? And another corridor, of course, going north to Albany and then a across through Syracuse, Buffalo, all of that. But, uh, you know, so I was talking to some people in um, one of the buildings trade unions about this. And they said, well, you know, this project would be really great for the unions. We admit that. I mean, this would just be tens of thousands of jobs, good paying jobs. But they said, um, we're not sure we really want to save Manhattan. <laughs> <laughs> that was pretty funny. funny. I, don't blame, I don't blame them. Honestly, yeah. like it's They're so funny. So sick of this. New York is such a funny state because most people who aren't from New York think of New York as just the city, but the, mm-hmm. the majority of the state really resents New York city <laughs> because right. they think they're the, exactly. they think they're the shit and they think like they get to do whatever they want. And now they want to turn the rest of the state into their organic food and renewable energy fiefdom. And it's just and tourism. Yeah. It's really and, easy to support yeah. all that when you live in a city and you don't actually produce any of it. That's right. That's right. The cities rely on the more rural areas for for food and for energy. And yeah. uh, I don't think they have any respect for that. Um, and, and what we're starting to see is a uh, a nuclear and upstate alliance uh, where um, people upstate are starting to identify the renewable energy problem, which is land use. Uh, you know, the renewable energy is going to take up a massive amount of land, and a massive amount of transmission lines from upstate to get it to New York City, which is where um, it's needed. Um, so what people are starting to identify is that, you know, we should build nuclear power close to New York City uh, to provide all the clean energy you know, without emissions. Obviously, like fossil fuels aren't as bad as people say they are, but I mean, they do they do. Um, you know, dirty up the air a little bit. So if we built nuclear power close to the city, uh, we'd save a lot of upstate land from just being needlessly uh, developed for a very low, you know, very low reason. Um, right. I don't know where I'm going with that. Yeah. But, oh, yeah. So like they've, they've announced that, uh, you know, the company that owns the Indian Point site, they are going to start developing um, small modular reactors, SMRs, um, which aren't as big as the existing nuclear plants that we know about. But is that something that's come up for you at all as, um, you know, people talking about? Um, yeah, and that's, like? I mean, we definitely need to do that. Unfortunately, like they did at Shoreham, my understanding is that they destroyed the containment, uh, whatever they have at Indian Point. It's not actually salvageable because it's been yeah. the case that people have been able to reopen nuclear plants. And I think it's idiotic to shut them down in such a way that you can't, but that's what they did. Yeah. So you still have all the transmission lines. So that makes that an ideal site for small modular reactors to get a bunch of energy going in the short term. And I think these are good and should be developed so you can get energy quickly to areas that need it particularly big healthcare complexes and things like that, where you don't want to have a blackout. I think we also need to have large nuclear power plants. Uh, You don't want everything to just be decentralized. There is a reason to have a government. There is a reason to have people living in a large city where you can find people who excel, like symphony orchestras and opera companies and ballet companies where you really get the best of the best which you can't do without a certain you know large population uh or scientific research um i was blown away to hear that twenty thousand people worked on building the web telescope from all around the world that was amazing so if you really want to do something to mankind it's one of those ticklish little paradoxes because the fundamental discovery only occurs in the mind of the individual. But if you have, if you have to figure out how to assimilate in the society or there are other complicated aspects of it, then you actually benefit from having a large number of people involved. Yeah. 
that's that's a, a very interesting and good i think good way to frame frame that we need cities and we need rural areas we need suburbs we need it all right and it all needs to yeah. kind of work together in a, a symphony almost and um but nothing's working as it should anymore everything is you know i think you hit on that word decentralized that's the name of the game is they're decentralizing everything and i think that's uh, a huge problem um is, right and again that's a paradox uh, because like food production should be decentralized why do you want to ship a tomato three thousand miles when there's one growing two miles from your house sure. right so i uh, but you want an overview from the top and then uh, you promote small family farmers as, as opposed to mega monopolies and things like that. Right. Well, when you when you have the big centralization, when you get that right and it's operating to, to um, optimize the population, I guess, optimize the, mm -hmm. the welfare of the population, then you can those smaller things can proliferate in a way that's really healthy and vibrant and positive for mankind. Right. right. But if you, yes, if you try to reverse it and you try to say, no, we have to, we have to start small, you know, and we can't go big at all. We just have to stay small. Then, then you're doing degrowth. Then you're doing, you're slowing things down. You need that social metabolism to be to be up and running to make sure all the other little smaller things can thrive. I, that's how mm -hmm. I think of that. Right, that's right. You've been listening to the Space Commune podcast. I'm Fox and my co-host is Alex. And today we've been talking to Diane Sarah. She is running for U.S. Senate against Chuck Schumer in the state of New York. Diane, um, where can people find um, find you online? How can they support your your campaign? Well, they can go to Sarah for Senate, and that's no numbers; it's all words. S like Sam. A R E F O R Senate.com. My website uh, is there, and if you go to my website, you can find how to find me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Montelegram. I just started, much to my horror, TikTok, which I really find <laughs> awful, but I think I have to use it. Uh, <laughs> and uh, people can sign up to volunteer or donate through the website. You can also call my campaign headquarters at 646-328-1932. I chose that number 1932 because it's the year that Franklin Roosevelt got elected. And nice. it was a good year for fighting fascism, at least in the United States, if not in other parts of the world. Awesome. That's really cool. Well, it, it's been great talking to you. I'm, I'm super excited about your campaign. 